Well, it's great to be back. It's been either four or five years since we were here last, and so uh, we're grateful to be back and be able to worship with you this morning. And uh, I'll tell you a little secret while we're getting the PowerPoint up is, is they tell us don't sing, just to lip sync in the mornings, because they don't want us to ruin our voices. But I can't help when you're in a good church with God-glorifying music that I have to sing, so sorry. <laughs> My voice should last, though, the rest of this time. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together again today, giving us another beautiful day in your creation. Lord, we're going to be going over a really important topic today that uh, has been ravaging the church. And so, Lord, I, I pray that uh, you give me clarity of mind and thought and speech, and that, sh- and that all the words that come out of my mouth are of you. And that everyone in here, you prepare their hearts and minds to be able to hear some things that maybe, maybe everyone here is in tune with, with this subject, and maybe some aren't. I just pray that, that by going through your word, that we can come to a correct biblical understanding of this subject, and then be able to go out and be the light into the world as evangelists, and also as apologists into the world, proclaiming your name and your majesty, and most importantly, your gospel. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So our topic today is the social justice movement. But if you notice that my topic doesn't say just social justice, it says the history and evils of the social justice movement. So I'm I'm letting you know right off the bat, I believe that the social justice movement is an evil movement. It's a satanic-driven movement. And so we're going to go over that today as to why I believe this and why you should believe this and why certainly God believes this. It is one of the hardest one of the hardest talks for me to give. Um, but before we get into it, we're going to start with a little quiz. This is a little interactive right now, okay? So the optimist says what? The glasses half full. Good. Um, now the pessimist says the glasses half empty. Good. And now the leftist says. Milk is racist. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> I wish I wish this was a laughing matter. <laughs> but the problem is, is that the social justice movement is a very racist movement. It categorizes us based on shade of our skin in a reverse way. And, and we're going to get into this a little bit more today. I want to cover a couple of Bible passages first thing this morning. So normally I do this through the, through the sermon. Pastor Steve asked me to kind of do it up front so that we, we lay a foundation for what we're going to be covering this morning. So first passage is Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, the Bible teaches Adam and Eve, lots of babies. Those babies got together, had more babies, and eventually all of us which makes all of us related, which makes all of us distant cousins of one another. Sorry, you are married to a relative. It's not incest, though. And most importantly, there's one blood and one race, according to the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. A lot of us should have this memorized. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What is this message? The gospel. Right? If we share our testimony and we give the gospel, it better include 
Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If your testimony doesn't have that, you aren't given the gospel. If your gospel message doesn't have that, you aren't given the gospel. Certainly we can add a lot more to it, but that is the gospel. It is about our sins against a holy, righteous, and just judge, the creator God himself. That's the gospel. Ezekiel 18, verses 18 19. Uh-oh, I'm going to that Old Testament. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. This passage proclaims very clearly that one person, one person alone, is responsible for their sins. Who is that? Himself. That according to Hebrews 9.27, every man is appointed once to die and then the judgment. When every one of you stands in front of God, if you are saved, if you are born again, you are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, and you will go immediately to heaven. If, however, you today are not born again, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is, if his blood doesn't cover you, you will face God on judgment day. And he's not going to care about your good works. He's not going to care about anything you've ever done. He's going to judge you for the wrong you've done. And you're going to be judged correctly and justly. And because he's eternal, your punishment's eternal, which is eternal damnation. But what you're not going to stand for on judgment day, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever when you die, is somebody else's sins. We don't stand for other people's sins. We stand for our own. And this becomes very important because this is one of the linchpins of the social justice movement in a wrong interpretation of the gospel and repentance and all kinds of other things. And so Ezekiel 18.20, the soul... We just talked about this, whose sin shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Right? The very next verse of what we just read. So let's go, let's go over some major points right now. Stop using the term racism. Stop it. Eradicate it from your vocabulary. But Dr. Sylvester, why? I mean, everyone uses this term. I know that's the problem. What do we just cover from Genesis 3.20? How many races are there? One. How can you have a concept of racism when there's only one race? So therefore, when a Christian uses the term racism, we are taking their terminology and trying to fit it into our worldview. Doesn't work. This is why we can't win this battle when we're on their territory using their terminology. Stop using it. Racism is not a biblical term. Now, sure, do some people sin against one another because of the shade of their skin? They do. Just like people sin against others by lying, stealing, and other things. But let's call for what it is, sin. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. So again, one blood, one rice. If I to not rice race, <laughs> this is a very white pulpit here. Do I look white? No. If I took a piece of black paper against an African American, do they look black? No. All it is is some of us are blessed with a little bit more melanin versus others. That's it. 
And then Italians like me are about halfway in between. We're like the happy medium, I think. But people are just various shades of brown. Here's another one. Social justice is not a biblical term. Dr. Sylvester, I mean, yeah, you're really pushing the buttons. What do you mean social justice is not a biblical term? Well, here's the thing. Do we ever see the words social and justice together in the Bible? Nope. What do we see in the Bible? Justice. What is that justice? That justice is God's justice, perfect justice, that comes down on sinners. And that justice was either satisfied on the cross by the Father's wrath being poured on his own son on that cross, where justice was satisfied there, for those who repent and believe, or it will be satisfied in hell for eternity, for those who have not repented and believed. That's justice. And that's the justice we have to be concerned about. The social justice movement changes the definition of justice. Talk about that more here too today. So the social justice movement, as I said, is torn apart nations, it's torn apart churches, it's tearing apart families today. And so we need to know how to be biblically literate about this entire subject. What is the definition of social justice? Well, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says it's a state or doctrine of egalitarianism. Okay, I'm like you, I don't like big words. Egalitarianism, egality, um, equality, this is about, they want everyone to have the same starting point. But of course, the social justice movement isn't just about that, as we're going to learn. In sociology, they say the correcting of the unjust treatment and or oppression of certain groups, such as, like, quote-unquote races, you know, we know there's only one, homosexuals, transgenders, and others. So, they, they believe that some people are oppressed by others for a purpose. Get into that a little bit more here soon. Now, what is, what is the magic word to get what you want? What do we teach our kids? Please, right? Well, not today. Today it's, I'm offended. It's, you're a racist. It's, you're phobic. Now, it doesn't take a scholar to know what a phobia is, right? You're scared of something. So when somebody calls you a homophobe, are you actually scared of homosexuals? I, okay, maybe some of the drag queens today. I get it. But in general, in general, this is a misnomer, this term. And yet it's being thrown out there. Why? Why are they using this terminology to us? They're trying to beat us down. They're trying to silence us. When they know they can call us certain names and accuse us of certain things, it puts us on the defensive instead of being able to speak intelligently and legibly about these things. And so when we accept being called these terms, we've lost right off the bat. So let's get into the background of social justice, because this is a fascinating, fascinating topic. And, and the history is really what makes us understand everything about this properly. You probably have not heard this at all. Yep. That's okay. Little noise, yep. So let's talk about the history of time. So I am unashamedly a what we call young earth creationist which should actually be termed biblical creationist because this is what the Bible teaches. This earth is only about 6,000 years old. That's for a different sermon, different day. But the beginning of time is a, somewhere around 6,000 years ago. 
And we talk about from the beginning of time to about the Middle Ages, a thousand-ish years ago, that though that time period was called the Age of God. Why? Because everybody knew God existed. I mean, we would say today everyone knows God exists, according to Romans 1, Psalm 19, but, but people had an inherent knowledge of God. I mean, we read in the Old Testament, the, the Gentile Samaritans, they knew the Israelite God. So there wasn't this question about, about God. People knew. They just chose to reject him, chose to suppress the truth about him and their sin. But they knew God, and that's why we call this historically the age of God. And then we had something happen in the Renaissance period, 800-ish years ago. This Renaissance period was a fascinating time period because what it did is it started to change a focus and the glory of God to the glory of man. In this Renaissance period, you know, a lot of us would have loved to have been called. I mean, growing up, when I, I wasn't a Christian growing up, so when you hear the term Renaissance man, like, oh, I want to be a Renaissance man. I want to be somebody who is, who's really good at sculpting and really good at painting and really good at fill in the blank because that's what a Renaissance man was, somebody who is like a master in multiple disciplines. And so these Renaissance men had a lot of praise thrown their way. I mean, think about guys like Leonardo, Michelangelo, and uh, Raphael, I know, Ninja Turtles as well, but, but they were painters and sculptors that were really good at what they did, and they were good in multiple disciplines. They were kind of the heads of these Renaissance men. And what it did during this time period is it changed the focus of people being on God to where? To ourselves. And so this Renaissance period led to what we call the Age of Discovery now. And this age of discovery was about going out and discovering the new worlds. For whose glory? Man's. For kings, right? I mean, kings, kings were throwing lots of money at different explorers to find new lands to grow their wealth and to, and to grow their own, their own popularity. And so that's what happened in the age of discovery. And all this leads up into what we call the Enlightenment period of the 1700s. The foundation was laid for hundreds of years before we get into this renaissance, I'm sorry, the uh, enlightenment period. And so now, all of a sudden, this enlightenment period is categorized by, by, by what we call humanism. So instead of the focus on God and giving glory to God for everything, the glory now comes to man. And when the glory comes to man, you had philosophers who were writing all kinds of books trying to figure out how to eradicate God from everything. Economics was the big one. But giving glory to man for literally everything. This is humanism. And this is what marked the entire Enlightenment period. So it turns in from the age of God into the age of reason. It it emphasized the agency of humans rather than God. Took, Took everything away from God. And they also believed in this idea of a greater good. Now, if we just think about it for a moment, the only reason why we can have absolute morality that applies everywhere at all times is because it came from one who's above all, which is God himself. Morality, which comes from the very nature of God, projected down into all of us and written on our hearts, is where you get morality from. During this time period, this, it was really weird They believed in the greater good for society, but tried to write God out of it. 
So it was human agency for good. And it was marked by tons and tons of philosophers, of course. So then we get into the French Revolution, because this is what the Enlightenment period rolled into. The Enlightenment period was centered in Europe, but mostly in France. They knew that they were able to accomplish some things in France. How many of you have watched Les Miserables before? Some of us. If you knew the real story, you'd probably never watch it again. I know it is a great play and all. When we talk about the French Revolution, this is what happens. We had philosophers writing about different classes of people, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Within France, though, there was a caste system. There was, at the top level, you had the nobility. These were the guys who had essentially all of, they, they had essentially all of the power. Next level was the clergy. These guys had some power, really whatever the nobility gave them. And then in the bottom class, you had two classes of people, and these were the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. By the way, you won't see this anymore. History books are rewriting history on this. I have it from notes back when I was in college a long time ago. Bourgeoisie and proletariat in the bottom class. The bourgeoisie were very wealthy. They didn't have power, though, but they were very wealthy. And then the people below them were their workers, and these were the proletariat. And so the philosophers were doing to overthrow the governments. They're saying, hey, guys, bourgeoisie, why is it that you guys have all the wealth, but you have no power? I mean, don't you want some of this power that they all have? And so they incited the bourgeoisie and their workers, the proletariat, to go do some warring. And that leads now to the first reign of terror. So in this first reign of terror, the guys that were doing all the work were the proletariat, the workers. And they went out and they ransacked the Bastille, took all the guns, chopping heads off nobility. They were defunding the police. All this was going on while the bourgeoisie sat back. First reign of terror ends. Bourgeoisie gets what they want. They get the power they desired. They're now in control. The proletariat who did all the bidding for them, where did they end up? The exact same place. They gained nothing out of this. So they sit back for fears. They're saying, wait a minute. We did all the work. We did all the ransacking. Why do you guys have all the power? To which they go on the second reign of terror. And now you have all kinds of chaos that happens in this country. We are taken out of power. And eventually you have the military rise up with a young upstart. Anyone care to guess who that was? Napoleon Bonaparte, who rose up and quashed everything into a military dictatorship. Now, as I describe the first and second reigns of terror, what does this actually sound like? Black Lives Matter? Think about this. The Democrats have talked about helping the African Americans and other minorities out for, oh, I don't know, 80 years now. Have they gained anything? None, right? In fact, the only thing they've really gained is more black babies being murdered in abortion mills. It's about the only thing they've gained. And we saw this blatantly just a few years ago where they were incited to go on a bunch of riots, caused 
tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of damage across America to do the bidding of the Democrats who have kept him down purposely all these years and continue to do so. This has been played before. When I saw Black Lives Matter happening, I'm like, oh, this is good. You guys, you guys copy the French Revolution and numerous other things that have happened over time. And people keep falling for this stuff over and over and over again. So this, let's fast forward now a little bit, because everyone wants to talk about Karl Marx as the centerpiece of the social justice movement. I hope that you now have an appreciation that it goes much further back in history. Karl Marx only codified what was happening for hundreds of years of philosopher writings. And so Karl Marx, his father was a guy named Heinrich, who Heinrich, his father, grew up in a Christian home. His father hated Christianity, hated God, and did everything he could to take God out of schools where they grew up. He was largely non-religious, huge fan of the Enlightenment. His mother, Henriette, this is what I always find fascinating. The social justice warriors typically are very wealthy people who never want to give away their own wealth to help people. They want to take it from everybody else. Well, guess what? Karl Marx's mom, wealthy family. How many of you have Phillips light bulbs in your house? Guess what? You're supporting her. <laughs> it was actually her family that started Phillips Electronics way back in the day. They were also very wealthy from tobacco farms. So this, these were Karl Marx's parents, and as a result of the way he was brought up into what we now call Marxism, which was really just this whacked-out idea in terms of, of taking God out of everything, humanism, he writes what's called the Communist Manifesto, which if I had three hours today, I'd go into a lot more detail on it, but it's all about humanism. He says this, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. The biggest problem in society isn't our sin against Almighty God, it's class warfare. And he used the same terms the philosophers did in the Enlightenment period, bourgeoisie and proletariat, although he changed the meaning slightly to them. What's interesting about him is he was actually pro-capitalism. Now you say, hold on a second. He was pro-capitalism in as much that he recognized the only way to grow wealth was through capitalism. It wasn't through the communistic ideas that other people were throwing out at the same time as him. But what he wanted to do with that money built up in capitalism was then distributed to everybody. So he wanted to see workers and owners get the same wages for the work. Just evenly distributed. So Karl Marx, he wrote this on religion. He called it the opium of the people. Drug addicts, right? That, that if you believe in God... It's because you're essentially on drugs. He was involved in the International Working Men's Association. When we talk about national unions, it comes from Europe and a lot of Karl Marx's teachings. And it's the basis for all the unions today. What's also interesting is that for me, who's a creationist, who I speak against Charles Darwin all the time, Darwin was at the same time as Karl Marx. They were contemporaries. Although Marx liked Darwin a lot more than Darwin liked Marx. And we're not really sure why in the history books. But Karl Marx admired Charles Darwin. He admired what Charles Darwin was teaching. And what was Charles Darwin teaching? Well, how many of you heard this book on the origin of species? 
How many of you know that's not the real title? Here's the real title. On the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the real title. Gets covered up on most websites. You can still find it out there. You can still find early copies of this book that have the entire title on it. Charles Darwin is a racist. Charles Darwin is the one who really promoted ideas that other guys were at the same time, but promoting ideas that you had five, depending on which book you read, you had four to five different monkey species that evolved some better than others. Guess which one evolved the best? Caucasians, the Caucasoids. Guess which ones evolved the worst that were still closest to monkeys? The Negroids. And then he put the others in between. That was Charles Darwin. Different races, by the way, can only come from an evolutionary worldview. It cannot come from the Bible. And so Charles Darwin's writing his books, this wasn't the only one, he wrote Descent of Man and others, that were admired by Karl Marx. So what happened in America? Basically, all of this that's happening in Europe starts getting transported here to America. The Intercollegiate Society, which we're going to talk about, the Christian Socialist Fellowship, which should raise some eyebrows. Christian Socialist Fellowship. The ACLU, Nationalized Workers Unions, Frankfurt School Teachings, and then Marxism in, in, in uh, Teachers Unions, which we can't get into today. Here's a challenge question for you. If you wanted to change an entire nation's belief or attitude about something, what would you use? The education system. Adolf Hitler used this. Many other people in the past used this. And guess what happened in America? The education system. Okay, class, you said we're going to learn division today. And the teacher says we are. Critical race theory. Because sadly, it's being taught, and it has been taught for a long time within our schools. It's only been exposed in the last three to four but it's been going on for a very long time. So this is what happened. 1905, Lower Manhattan, New York, upper room meeting. You had a number of guys get together. 100 people met together and formed what they called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. When I put this, these talks together, I started this about five years ago, before anybody really knew what the social justice movement was because we saw it coming down the pike. You could find all kinds of information about the Inter Intercollegiate Socialist Society. Today, very difficult. You can find it. You've got to do a lot of searching. Their purpose was to calculate changing America into a socialist nation and the overthrow of the Christian worldview and replace it with the ideas of Karl Marx. I want you to appreciate something. There's socialism and Christianity. There's Marxism. There's Christianity. There's social justice movement, Christianity. They are directly opposed to one another. I think you've seen this already, and you're going to continue to see this the rest of my time up here this morning. And what they wanted to do is infiltrate their ideas into every segment of society by going to the schools, by going to the colleges. So what did they target? They targeted teacher colleges. Because if you can control the teachers, if you can teach the teachers, guess what the teachers are going to go do when they go become teachers in schools? Teach the same stuff. And so they targeted those schools. By 1917, they were active on 61 campuses, 12 graduate schools. We're talking 12 years. They were able to accomplish this. 
You know what some of those schools were? Harvard, UPenn, Columbia, and many others. You know what a lot of those are? Ivy League schools. You know what Ivy League schools started as at one time? Christian seminaries. Make no mistake about it. This is who they targeted. It's absolutely incredible how good they were at it. They were at this. And so they conditioned through the education system. See, this idea of humanism or the ideas of humanism, they brought to the teacher colleges. Teacher colleges then brought it to the secular universities. Secular universities did what? Brought it to the public schools. Some of these ideas we can trace back as, as far as the 1940s in American public schools. 1940s. Not five years ago. Not ten years ago. 1940s. I have books at home where there's liberals in the 1970s calling out the Marxists. Liberals were doing this. Calling out the Marxists in the NEA. And they were saying it's been there since at least the 1940s. Maybe it was earlier. I just don't have proof of that. But that's not all that happened because humanism not only affected the teacher colleges to secular universities, it also came to Christian universities. And because it went to Christian universities, it went to seminaries. And because it went to seminaries, guess where it ended up at? In our churches. And that's what we're really seeing today. It's been there for quite some time. It's been covered up for a long time. It's been called by other names for a long time. But it's really been out there very recently now, um, out in the open. John Dewey is a special guy. He was one of the ones that was at that original meeting in 1905, the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. John Dewey is not the maker of the Dewey Decimal System. I just want you to know that. A contemporary of his who is named Dewar Dewey was the one. So a lot of people, I hear people all the time in the social justice, speaking against social justice, well-known guys who keep confusing the two. They're not the same. John Dewey, however, was a really interesting character. He was a guy who was a professor at Columbia University. Hence, Columbia is one of the ones that was changed. Columbia University was responsible for putting out the most teachers across the country in colleges and public schools. That's where John Dewey was at. He wasn't actually a teacher in the teaching department. He was a teacher in the philosophy department. But there was a cl there were several classes that crossed over from his philosophy into teaching. So every single teacher that went through Columbia passed through John Dewey. So this John Dewey from 1904 to 1930 was his professor of philosophy. And this is what's remarkable. John Dewey's handwriting... His signature are on, the, are on the teaching certificates by the 1950s of 20% of American school superintendents. Across the country, 20% of them had John Dewey's signature on them. This is astounding what one man was able to accomplish with a few other people. And 40% of all U.S. teacher college heads, John Dewey, direct result. Amazing what these guys were able to do, pre-planning way ahead what they were going to do, what they intended to do, and affect the education system. He was also an original signer of the Humanist Manifesto. Now, let's switch gears. While this is going on in the education system and eventually affecting seminaries, we also had something called the Christian Socialist Fellowship. 
They had their first convention in the early 1900s, the second convention's in 1907, two years after the Intercollegiate Society met. And here's the resolution of the Socialist Party. In other words, the Socialist Party stands for economic and in no sense whatever religious or anti-religious work. This group was made up of secular philosophers and Christian pastors. Again, don't have time to go into all this stuff, but you can research the Christian Socialist Fellowship and read all of the things, all of their amendments, and what they intended to do over the coming years. They were the ones directly responsible for affecting seminaries and affecting pastors. One of these guys, Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, by the way, this Christian Socialist Fellowship, even though they didn't really start to write down things until the 19, early 1900s, they were around since the 1880s in America. So they were around for a long time. Walter Rauschenbusch served as president of them for, for a long time as well. Baptist pastor, lived from 1861 to 1918. One year before he died, he wrote a book called A Theology for the Social Gospel. He taught that Jesus' death on the cross was not for atoning sin. Instead, he taught that it was for the six social sins of America. That's what Jesus died for. Completely changing the gospel. So let's be clear. Marx's philosophy, socialist philosophy, social justice movements are anti-God. Directly opposing God, and therefore, it's satanic. This is of Satan. Now, how do we view the social justice? What do we need to do today? Right? So we've gone through all this history as much as we could in our time allotted. How should we view this? Well, first of all, get rid of the word social. Let's talk about justice. Because this is a worldview issue. See, a social justice worldview, they start with these two beliefs. Personal experience and man's philosophy. Anytime you hear somebody talk about social justice, they want to quote statistics that are always wrong, by the way. And they want to quote people's experiences... And basically, they want you to listen to the oppressed groups and believe them. Biblical worldview, on the other hand, must start with these two beliefs. His, God exists, his word is true. Believe your Bibles. Read them, believe what they say. So this is a worldview issue. I want us to get this foundation right. What does the world say about people? Like if I walked up to the average person on the street like the friendly Mormons last night on our way to dinner... And he asked them if they're basically, you know, why they believe they're going to go to the top level of heaven, because that's what they thought. They, well, they, they say, well, it's about my works, right? It's about all the good things I've done, all the good things I continue to do, all the good things I will do in the future. Because people believe they're inherently good. I can walk up to nearly any stranger, nearly anybody who believes in any false religion, like Roman Catholicism and others, where if I ask people if they're going to die today to go to heaven or hell, they're almost always going to tell me heaven, and when I ask why, they'll almost always tell me, because I'm a good person. I, I walk old ladies across the street, and I, I treat people well, and I love people, and I donate money. And by the way, did I tell you I love people? And That's always their answer. The social justice movement views people in this exact same light, that people are basically good. Therefore, when something happens to them, blame the world. Go after the world for it. Punish the world for it. Ask for reparations from the world for it. 
What does the Bible say? People are inherently evil. No one is good, no, not one. And so we must interpret through a biblical lens. See, R.C. Sproul, I, and I'm not a big fan of a lot of books out there. I know I wrote a book that I you know, like people to buy, but I'm not a big fan of books because I believe most of our time should be read reading God's Word. But there are some books that are at the top of my list for anybody, and one of them is The Holiness of God from R.C. Sproul. And for those of you who are nodding your heads, you might remember this story in there, but there is a, a gentleman who was arrested for committing rape in jail for 30 years. And he maintained his innocence the whole time. Finally, when DNA evidence came out later, he was, he was exonerated. He got a retrial, was exonerated, was set free. And R.C. Sproul recounts this and says, you know, in the, in the human economy, this guy was done wrong, right? Sue the police department, sue the detectives, sue the everybody, and, and make them pay for, for what you lost in terms of 30 years of your life. In, God, in, in the human economy, he was done wrong. But what about by God's economy? See, in God's economy, we've all sinned, right? When did we deserve death in our lives? From the beginning. Like Adam and Eve, when they ate of the fruit, could God have killed them right then and there in the garden? Yeah, he didn't because of his grace and mercy. See, when we understand ourselves properly in the light of who God is and who we are, wretched sinners versus the trice holy God, we recognize who we are. And so therefore, if someone sins against me, I'm to recognize first and foremost that I've sinned against Almighty God myself. So the greatest marriage advice I ever received was, no matter how much your wife sins against you, guess what? You've sinned against God a whole lot more yourself. And that if you want God's grace to cover you in your sin, guess what he already did for your wife's sin? It's already been paid for. Right? And so if we understand this, this movement right, it's the social justice movement, even if somebody sins against somebody based on the shade of their skin, if that person's saved, it's already been covered by the blood of the cross. If they're not saved, what are we to do? Proclaim the gospel to them that they can be saved and have their sins forgiven, including ones against another for the shade of their skin. Not reparations, not browbeating, not calling people names. It's by the blood of Jesus that these sins are covered and forgiven. See, this is a proper view of the social justice movement. And so, how should we respond to this social justice movement? Well, through scripture, just like I went through here for a few minutes. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's all, of it, all of it is his word. We see that it's profitable for all kinds of things. And most importantly, it's sufficient. In the social justice movement, we do not need man's philosophy. We don't need man's opinion. We need God's word because it is sufficient. This is why we have to keep going back to this. So let's define the term justice. Receive what you deserve, right? 
Wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. What, his word is true. God exists. Our two presuppositions is diametrically opposed to man's philosophy and personal experience. Diametrically opposed. Let's define some terms. Equality. See three guys that are trying to look into the ball game? Equality. They all have the same starting blocks, right? What's equity? Well, let's rearrange those blocks so that we can all see into the game. So equality is the starting point. Equity is, regardless of what the starting point is for everybody and what happens in life, we want everybody to end in the same spot. What's socialism? <laughs> Chop legs off and bring them all down. Because in, in essence, that's what happens in the long run. What is justice, on the other hand? Go buy a ticket to the ball game. There's been this shift in social justice. Critical race theory, which used to be that oppressors, white men, are against anyone who's non-white, has really become what we call critical theory, which is essentially the white man who is against every perceived oppressed group out there. And that's what we're going to be covering in our remaining time here today. So, four points. Critical race theory, which includes intersectionality and systemic racism. We're going to talk about races, homosexuality, transgenderism. Another quiz. The bear on the left is a brown bear. Bear on the middle is a black bear. Bear on the right is a racist bear. Come on, you guys should know better now. I just led you right into that one. But, but in all seriousness, I mean, this is what the social justice movement is, right? This is what critical race theory is, is if you're white, you're automatically labeled a racist. And you're either a racist and admit to it, to which we'll punish you for, or you don't admit to it, which makes you a worse racist, to which we're going to punish you for. Ouch. It doesn't seem like there's a way out. Because there's not. So they believe that racism is inherent in the fabric of society. That, that the white man has purposely rigged the entire system, the education system, the hospital system, the economic system, every system you can imagine that it's been rigged for the white man for the sole purpose of oppressing the black man and other minorities by default. And, and so they say it's based on what we call white privilege and that it marginalizes everyone who isn't white. So it says that everybody else is marginalized. And so what they've... What they've done is they've tried to flip the script, their own script, but try to flip it and say that many disadvantaged groups exist. So if you've heard this term intersectionality before, that's what they're talking about, is that there's supposedly many disadvantaged groups that exist. And that they say that there's an increased oppression for the more groups that you belong to that are supposedly oppressed. Okay, what does this mean? We're going to talk about categories here. These categories of intersection are shade of skin, gender, nationality, same gender from birth, sexual preference, economic class, able-bodied versus disability, and any other perceived or oppressed group. These are the classes that the social justice warriors, critical race theorists, want to look at. And so these are what they call the not oppressed groups. People who are white, male, European background, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle class, or above, or able-bodied. How many of us are all of these categories. Go ahead and raise your hands. Yeah, there's a number of us in here who are. If you're male and white and middle-aged, chances are you're one of these. 
And so that means that you're part of no oppressed group, and because you've never suffered oppression, you have no voice in society. That's what this means. What about the oppressed groups? Non-whites, non-male, non-European background, transgendered, non-heterosexual, not middle class or above, not able-bodied. How many of you are at least one of these things? Every female, raise your hands. Come on, keep it up. Come on, keep it up. This is a class exercise. Um, if you're not white, raise your hands as well. I mean, if you're not, if you're any one of these, okay, good. Keep your hands up. I didn't say to live. Simon did not say to put them down. Okay, so how many of you are two of these groups? Two of them. So congratulations. You guys get two points as versus the ones who only got one point. See, if you're part of, if you had your hand up for just one, that means you're part of one oppressed group. You have some voice in society. If you're hand was still up after two of those, you have like a double portion. That you're part of two oppressed groups, therefore you have even a louder voice in society. How many of you are three of these? You are the winner today. So from now on, you get to have more voice than anybody in this church, according to intersectionality. But that's what it teaches. Does this sound wrong to you? Is it dehumanizing? It's racist, right? But this is what they want to teach. And so basically, the more groups you belong to, the more you're oppressed and the more you, want to, the more you have an ability to speak, which should bring to mind something really interesting. Elizabeth Warren was claiming to be Pocahontas, wasn't she? Why? Oh, because if she claimed to be Native American, what could she do? she would be able to have another oppressed group in her resume. Oh, and by the way, we had one of those up on the panel of, of the liberals running for president because Kamala Harris was somebody who could be in two oppressed groups as well. So now all of a sudden, Kamala Harris wasn't, a, wasn't the one who is the, the one should be listened to the most. Now Elizabeth Warren wanted to be equal with her. That's why it was such a big deal to her. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody knew what was going on unless you understood intersectionality. Here's one other thing that's interesting about intersectionality. Is Muslims and homosexuals hate one another. That's fact. We see, we see at least once a week a homosexual gets murdered by a Muslim in our country that goes unreported by the news. Why? Because they're both part of oppressed groups. Why was it that when the Pulse nightclub got shot up in Orlando, Florida, seven years ago, eight years ago, that it was covered up? I mean, 50-some people died, another couple dozen injured, homosexuals. Why did they not release the person's identity who shot up that place? It took five days before it was reported by a lesser news network, and then finally the other ones had to do it. Who was it? It was a Muslim. Because they were desperately trying to protect two different minority groups. That's how far they're willing to go and have been willing to go all these years. And what's fascinating about this is that Muslims and homosexuals hate one another. But for the purposes of homosexuality, I'm sorry, for the purpose of intersectionality, what do they do? They'll join forces. Why? Why do they do this? 
Well, show of hands, who's Christian here? Guess what? You go directly to the bottom of the list. Because it doesn't matter how many intersectionality points you have, it doesn't matter how many oppressed groups you belong to, you go directly to zero, you don't pass go, you don't collect your $200, you're dead to them. This is directly against Christianity. That's the whole point of Marxism. I know, this is hard to believe, right? But this is what's going on behind the scenes. So what does the Bible say? All people are made in the image of God, regardless of, shade of, of, the, of, regardless of their shade, regardless of their melanin count. Only difference between people. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Adam. Right? So God has classifications for us. He has two separate races. What are they? Believers and unbelievers. That's how he views us. And that Jesus reconciles people through the cross. What is the social justice movement on systemic racism? Well, they say that the system's always been rigged. We covered that. And that they point to the experiences of black people. And again, I hate that term, just using it for ease. Experiences of black people being shot by police, black people being less wealthy, and so on and so forth. They have all kinds of claims. One of them that's police are two and a half times more likely to shoot a black man over a white man. The reality is is that the media and sociologists have misrepresented all these statistics. They've blatantly lied. Vody Bauckham wrote a book called Fault Lines. He goes through all the statistics on this and shows you what the truth actually is. And so cases like George Floyd, Tamir Rice, and Breonna Taylor were blatant lies in the media. What does the Bible say about systemic racism? Do we have a rigged system? I would say yeah. Why? Because we have a fallen world. It was rigged by Adam and Eve. So now we're in a fallen world where we are sinners, we sin against one another, and Jesus has one way to be reconciled, and it's through the blood of the cross, or on the cross. Because the reality is, is that according to this rigged system, it doesn't matter what shade of skin you are, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, it doesn't matter what any of those other oppressed groups are, that everyone sins. And everyone experiences the effects of sin. All of us. See, justice is about us being sinners against God. That's what we all ought to be primarily worried about. And worried that even the sins against one another for shade of our skin is ultimately against God. If you don't believe me, read Psalm 51 in David. So systemic racism, stats don't bear this out, there's no laws that exist on the books today that we know of that are racist still, and that this is a sin problem, not a race problem. We talked about this already, one blood, one race. Ken Ham does a great job of this at the Answers in Genesis Arc Museum, or Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Now, even though there's one blood, one race, are there nations? Yes, there's many nations, and we read that in several spots in Scripture. We'd already talked about evolution leads to racism. The Bible does have the word race in there. I already gave you a sneak peek into it. What races do God or does God acknowledge? Children of God, children of Adam. Sons of God, sons of Satan. Those are the only two races. And so this critical racism theory, what I find fascinating about this as we as we start shoring up here pretty soon or 
I call it the Trojan horse. The idea of critical race theory and intersectionality, five years ago when I saw it starting to come out, I'm like, that's not going to be what is, is really going to hurt the church or attempt to hurt the church, right? Nothing, nothing breaks Christ's church. But I, I never believed that it was those two things that were going to do it. It would cause some damage. But there's enough people, both Christian and non-Christian, who see through some of this. And there's plenty of secular philosophers today that have been speaking out for several years on this. Some that you know really well and others that you don't. But it's a Trojan horse. You see, with critical race theory and intersectionality comes love and acceptance. Comes pro-homosexual, the LGBTQ movement, progressive Christianity. Those are the things that are being brought in at rapid speed. And so we're going to get into our final two points. The social justice movement has radically transitioned into white men oppressing homosexuals, transsexuals, bisexuals, queer, and all the other letters of the alphabet that belong there now. Apparently there's 50-some letters in the LGBTQ movement. And so what they want us to do is to not just allow us to come out of the closet now, not just allow us to love who we want to love, not just allow us to have, you know, we'll just call it unions and not marriage, right? This is what's happened the last 30 years. You know what? I mean, let us, let us kiss, but we'll just do it in our own neighborhoods out in public. Oh, well, now let us kind of walk down the street and just, just ignore us, which, by the way, was never the intention. We have books that go back to the 70s that say homosexuality is going to be celebrated by Christians. That was their goal all along. Not just to be tolerated, not to be accepted, but to celebrate with them. Hmm. Kind of seeing that today, aren't we? Greg Bonson wrote a book on this in 1978 that I've read. You could, you could read that book today and it would look the exact same as it did almost 50 years ago. They want us to normalize and celebrate them. They want to talk about their marriage rights. They want to talk about this idea of gender fluidity that I could say, well, I'm a female now and then later on today I'll be a male again and guess what? You better figure that out or you're in trouble. You better know as I'm transitioning throughout the day. That's fluidity. Well, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Right? Let's just get right to it. We need more preachers. I know your pastor is one of them, but we need more preachers today to say, thus saith the Lord. Oh, oh, Dr. Sylvester, what's your opinion on homosexuality? It's not about my opinion. What does God say? Let me tell you what he says, right? In Leviticus, it's, it's an abominable sin. Clearly in Levit- Leviticus. What does the New Testament say? Romans 1, 26, 27. It says this is contrary to nature. We often skip over this idea of, of, of the unnatural, right? Exchanging the natural for the unnatural. Exchanging the normal for the not normal. This is really, really powerful, right? We look out in nature, we watch nature shows, and you see the male horse and the female horse. You see the male bee and the female bee. You see, I mean, all over nature, this is what we see. Homosexuality is against God's created order. It is against God's design for literally everything that we see and witness in creation. I mean, we even call plugs and outlets male and female. 
No, it's everywhere, right? This is by nature. We know this. So when somebody says they're homosexual, we're like, look, you know as well as I do, this isn't normal. It's sin. None of this world works this way. And by the way, there isn't a gay gene. You weren't born this way. Because if you were born this way and you don't have kids, your genes would not be passed on to the next generation. And guess what? It would be gone in one generation. It's sin. Thus saith the Lord. Right? This is where we have to go. Jesus. Oh, when people say that Jesus didn't speak on homosexuality, first of all, all of God's word is, should be red letters, right? The entire thing. All 66 books. Because you hear this argument today. But Jesus asked about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And what did he say? He quoted directly from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which talks about marriage between one man and one woman. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11 is one of my favorite passages to go over. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? We've read this numerous times, I'm sure. And then we see this long list of sins. One of those is homosexuality. So it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Lost of sins, one of them is nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul, who's writing to the Corinthian church, is saying, and as such were some of you. In this Corinthian crowd were liars and others in this list of sins, including men who practice homosexuality. And then he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed of that sin, separated as far as the east is from the west. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. Sorry, Sam Alberry. There's no such thing as two guys being able to cuddle together as long as you don't penetrate. This is ludicrous. But it's being taught in Christian circles today. Even in some reform circles. No, you can be washed of that sin. This is what we need to teach people. I bring this out all the time in homosexual parades. Talk about transgenders now. This one got me banned for, I think, two weeks on uh, Facebook. But uh, actual genders, all kinds of other genders that Somebody labeled mental disorders, and I would say there's probably uh, some truth to that, but in reality, it's sin, right? When we, when we look at God's creation and we say, well, it's something other than male and female, that's plain old sin. <clears throat> I want us to appreciate this, because this is the newest one that's about to hit today, and has been hitting. Gender is inseparable from biological sex. Even Ben Shapiro, who a lot of people listen to, and by the way, he's not a Christian, a lot of people listen to him. He's wrong on this, on this topic. He still has a, this micro-separation. There is no separation. Gender is inseparable. See, here's the deal. In biology, you have a sperm and an egg. That egg is always X. The sperm is always X or Y. When an X sperm hits an X egg, you get two Xs, and guess what that is? Female. When, that, when those two things come together, form the first cell in the mom's womb, as a living body, by the way, that those two cells now replicate over and over and over again to these 60 trillion cells we have today. All of them with the exact same XX or XY that they had from conception. So it means that it doesn't matter how many surgeries you do, 
It doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter how much lipstick you put on. You can't change what you were made with. And so we're made of 60 trillion cells. 30 trillion are our sexual gametes, red blood cells. They do not carry XX or XY. All other 30 trillion cells do. There's nothing you do to get away from this. What's really fascinating when I talk about gender versus, versus the biological sex, gender has they've been trying for the last 20 years. Because before that, you go, to, you go buy old dictionaries and old encyclopedias from like Goodwill or garage sales my wife loves to go to. I pick up old dictionaries for this purpose because you will, you will read that, that gender and biological sex are one and the same. They're synonyms. It's only been in the last 20 years they've tried to change this. And so Jenny LeGraves did a study on, on gender, and she found that one-third of the genes, same genes, male and female, are influenced by whether you're XX or XY. Those hormones and those genes that develop your personality are all influenced by your XX or XY, meaning gender has to be inseparable from biological sex. You cannot separate them, even, even a smidgen. And most of those genes were not even on the XY chromosomes. And so here's the challenge, though, for us. What about people, Dr. Sylvester, who are born with both sets? Right, I mean, we've got Kleinfelter syndrome, XXY, we've got triple X syndrome, we've got others. What about people that are born with, with a, some type of wrong order of these X's and Y's? What about them? Well, let me tell you. Number one, they're the exception, not the rule. Less than 1% of all live births actually fit in these categories. Number two is this. These are mistakes. They're not part of God's original creation. They're part of the fall. They're part of genetic disorders that occur because of the fall and sin, not part of God's original creation. The people that are born with these, if they repent and put their trust in Christ, when they die, they'll be given a new body that's either male or female for the rest of eternity. And so, and some people will say, well, wait a minute, Dr. Sylvester, what do you mean by mistakes? Well, what about somebody who's mentally retarded, who has trisomy 18 or trisomy 21? They'd be given three copies of, of the gene on, on 18 or three copies on 21. No different than if they got three copies of an X. There are mistakes. Problems because of the fall in our genetic code. That does not dictate male versus female. So therefore, Bruce Jenner and Dr. Richard Levine. Yes, I know. I see the scared look on some of your faces. They're men. They're not women, no matter how much lipstick they put on. What's scary today, you talk about everything's in the name of science. He is the assistant health secretary of Joe Biden right now. Drag queen story hour. Horrific pictures. You know what's happening in public schools, public libraries, and some churches today? Drag queen story hour. <clears throat> I just want to talk to your chickens about their sexuality. Almost all of them are pedophiles. And it's their way to be able to get around little children and bounce them on their laps, as we see countless videos doing. And by the way, last night, it was horrific to see. We were watching something as, going, as we were going to bed, and there was a new reality show out there. Move over, Dancing with the Stars. There is now 
Dancing with the Transgender Stars, led by RuPaul. That's coming out real soon. Being shoved down our throats. Gender roles, I won't belabor this. I know your pastor teaches on this. God made all of us in his image, made male and female in his image, and even when he made us in his image and we are completely equal in the eyes of God, he gave us different roles. And so, sorry, men have different roles. We can be pastors, women cannot be. Women, much more connected to kids than men are. God designed us that way for reasons, many other designs that he's put in. And so there are actual gender roles assigned to males and females by God himself that we read about in the scriptures. Very different than what we hear today in society and the feminist movement that's been out there. Other social justice issues, global warming, climate change, eradicating guns, veganism, this idea of everything's in the name of science, abortion, and many others. These are all social justice issues that have been talked about for years without you recognizing it was part of a social justice movement. These things will be hammered on really hard in the coming years, although it's homosexuality and transgenderism that's going to really affect the church. Because once hate speech laws come here that are in Canada and Europe, we're going to have to make a stand at that point. CRT, it's a new satanic religion. They do nothing different than what Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, and others do. They borrow from the familiar, then redefine. They're the cult of anti-racism where the humanism is God. It's not God himself. And they're all satanic religions. The social justice movement thinks original sin is racism. They don't think it's Adam and Eve and by proxy all of us. Common Bible verse used. I've heard this on, on a on different podcasts that I've listened to, people who we thought were conservative, we see it all over the internet. They quote Revelation 7-9 saying they were from every race, tribe, nation, and language and they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. Do you notice anything wrong with this? That word race is actually nation in the Bible. They switch the word when they quote it. They switch the word both on podcasts, they switch it in sermons, they switch it on the internet. Try to push this idea. They're very, very clever, just changing scripture ever so slightly. No different than what happened in the garden by Satan himself while he was talking to Eve. There's one other claim that's out there that's newer, social justice claim. They say that there's this, what's called the 1619 Project. A lady made this up five years ago. She said, you know what, the American Revolution was not actually... Our revolution, the revolution actually happened in 1619. The American Revolution in 1776 and those couple of years was actually the American states wanting to continue racism and England trying to stop us from doing it. Totally rewriting history. Blatantly lying about history. But you're going to start seeing these books in bookstores, if not already. Complete fraud. What's the real solution? There's biblical view on all people. We see the parable of the talents. We've all read about this, right? God gave one five, one two, and one one. And uh, all servants received a different amount. And that the faithfulness was seen in each one of these servants by what they did with that talent, or the talents. The one who did five and one who was given two, they both doubled it. The one who was, had, was given one buried it. And so the parable, the moral of the story is, do what God has given you. Use it to your fullest ability for his glory. It's about your faithfulness. 
What nobody ever asked, though, is why did God choose to give 1, 5, 1, 2, and 1, 1 to begin with? Because that's not very social justice of Jesus. Why? Because he's God. He's sovereign. I don't know. I have no clue. But I know that, that that's real and that God is sovereign over everything and, and this is what he does. And so what's the real solution, biblical view in all people? God commands repentance, not reparations. Commands us to repent and believe the gospel. Even if you've sinned against somebody else because of the shade of their skin, he commands repentance. Zacchaeus, they want to talk about Zacchaeus. They say, oh, Zacchaeus, look, he paid everyone back fourfold, right? Therefore, these are reparations. No, Jesus did not tell Zacchaeus to go pay back everybody. Zacchaeus, out of his own goodness, because he was truly saved, decided to go pay back the people he personally defrauded. And by the way, the four times amount was because that was Old Testament law. Zacchaeus paid back the people he personally defrauded. It wasn't Zacchaeus' grandson paying back other people. It wasn't Zacchaeus paying back their grandkids. Zacchaeus personally paid back the people he personally defrauded. Exact opposite of what reparations are, are today. Again, he was the sinner. All humans are born with original sin. We said Hebrews 9.27, and Justin is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. There's no such thing as generational sin or accountability for sin. We talked about this earlier, right at the beginning in Exodus 18, that just because I sin, the future generations are not responsible for my sin. What generational sin in the Bible is, is that if my grandfather sinned a certain way, it was more likely that my father would do the exact same sins. And it was more likely than for me to do the exact same sins. And I can assure you, as an Italian coming from the old country, as my, my dad did, there were plenty of sins that we all did, including my generation. Those are the ones I'm responsible for that I committed myself. Sins that I did not commit that were committed by my father and grandfather, I am not responsible for. <clears throat> so the reality is, is God's justice must be satisfied. It's not about social justice, it's about justice. And it's either going to be on the cross 2,000 years ago where his justice was satisfied for anybody who repents and believes, or it's going to be in hell, lake of fire for eternity. And so the gospel proclamation is not for us to go out there and say we must make this place a more equitable place. It's not that we must change culture to make it a more equitable place. This is not the gospel message we're supposed to be proclaiming. We're not supposed to be proclaiming reparations and all these other things for this, some sins that still do occur against one another for color of their skin or shade of their skin. Instead, the way that we stop that type of sin in all others is through a correct gospel proclamation. It is through when we see somebody sinning for any reason, we call them to repentance. If they're a believer, call them to repentance. If they're an unbeliever, call them to repentance and faith. Social justice warriors, if you want to stop what you call racism, do it through God's method of the gospel proclamation. Because when you proclaim the gospel to those people who are doing it, God changes hearts. And when he changes that heart, it's in the heart of flesh, and he changes the mind towards sin, that's how you fix culture. 
It is not through reparations. It is not through browbeating. It is not through name-calling. It's through the gospel. That's not it. This is it. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. True justice was served on the cross. That's the only justice we need to be concerned about. So we want to see hearts changed through the proclamation of God's gospel. So believers, love God, love your neighbor, go proclaim the truth. Uh, real quickly, my book on the origin of kinds is back there. I wrapped together three disciplines in apologetics. Creation apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, and biblical evangelism, Ray Comfort style. That's all in my book in the back. And then one of my ministry partners, Andrew Rappaport. So he and I do a lot of traveling together. We've been here twice before at the church together. He has two amazing books. One's What Do We Believe? The other's What Do They Believe? I know a lot of you have systematic theologies that are like this big from Wayne Grudem and others. And you look at it and you're like, next year I'll get to that one. Maybe next year. Andrew's 200 pages, phenomenal. You'll be almost as good as your pastor. Not quite. If you read that and know it. What do they believe? Talks about different cults and what they believe so we understand more about where they're coming from and how it differs from the Bible. Also wonderful books. Um, if you want any, my son's in the back. If we sell out, I couldn't bring a whole lot. We'll take a list and I'll ship them to you for free. So no big deal. Uh, black lives matter? No, black lives are murdered. So we need to get out and continue stopping abortion because blacks encompass uh, somewhere around 45 to 50% of all murders at abortion mills are black babies. Very, very disproportionate. If people actually cared about black lives, they care about the ones right there that are in the womb. So we need to get out there because while Roe v. Wade was a wonderful victory, the fight has just begun. It's coming to the state level. So, puns about communism aren't funny unless everyone gets them. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> and on that we end. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together today. And, and just, I know, such a weighty topic. And uh, Lord, I just pray that, that uh, if, if somebody walked in today and wasn't completely in line with understanding social justice from your perspective, that, that now they do. And that you continue to work on everybody in here to get to know you better. To be able to get to know you better, Lord, and, and be able to go out and proclaim your truths and social justice movement, but most importantly, about your true justice and that people are sinners and they deserve hell for eternity. But by your grace, they can be saved. In your holy presence, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Anthony. Uh, we're going to close with that, and uh, we have some good food over in the fellowship hall.